Hello and welcome to Build Back Better, a series of online conversations from For the Region about the future of South West Wales. I'm Dawn Lyle and today I am really delighted and honoured to be talking to Jane Davidson. Now many of you will know Jane of course. Jane is a former minister in Welsh Government and more recently Pro Vice-Chancellor at University of Wales Trinity St David. But for the last year, Jane has been squirreled away in her attic office in Pembrokeshire writing a book. And that book has just recently been released and we're hoping to uh, really dig into it today. The book is called Future Gen, Lessons from a Small Country. And uh, welcome, Jane. Thank you very much for being here and uh, talking to me about this book, which I have loved and read cover to cover as soon as it came out. Thank you so much, Dawn, for inviting me to join you on the podcast. And um, I'm, I'm finding podcasts have been one of the most effective ways of um, helping me think during lockdown. And you are talking about being part of um, the Build Back Better uh, campaign and it's been absolutely fascinating to me you know how many people are becoming interested in thinking for the long term so if we just take the essential proposition that if governments if businesses if organizations um, put future generations at the heart of their law or policy we get different kind of decisions and that is at the heart of any of the propositions that have come through the lockdown in the context of what Build Back Better looks like or Reset Cymru looks like or Build Better looks like or any way in which we envisage a different kind of relationship between people, organisations and governments. So extraordinarily, on the basis that you could never have predicted this, if I'd launched my book at the Hay Festival, which I did, um, uh, in person, as was planned, I probably would have had an audience of about 200. Because of the interest um, in books about Wales from people in Wales, I probably would have sold perhaps three or 400 copies in the Hay Bookshop. Now, I've no idea how many copies have been sold, but I can tell you that my online events at Hay have probably been seen by 10,000 people across wow. the world. So oddly enough, our embracing of the digital agenda is not only bringing down our emissions, <laughs> but is actually facilitating the conversations about what kind of world we all want to live in. So I feel incredibly excited about where we are now and also full of hope that actually these ideas, I mean, not my ideas in particular, but the idea of thinking long-term and different ways of people expressing those thoughts of thinking longer term um, will actually be really seriously considered uh, in all sorts of places across the world. I think that um, global outreach is so important for this book in particular, Jane, because and I think I presume this was in your mind as you were writing it, but the, the thing about the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act is that it's so groundbreaking and, and a sort of world first for a piece of legislation that puts sustainable development and the well-being of future generations at the heart of government and government decision making. And it's been um, 
celebrated around the world as such a landmark and groundbreaking piece of legislation from us here in Wales as a small country, as you, as you note in the title of the book. You know, how, how important is it for you to um, talk about the Act in a context that makes it relevant to people all around the world and not just relevant to us here in Wales? When I, when I was writing the book, I was asked a number of times about who my audience was. And I really had no idea. I knew there'd be an audience, I mean, a small audience because Wales is a small country, of people who would be interested in the story um, from the beginning of the National Assembly and why Wales uh, had a duty to promote sustainable development in everything they did, um, given to the new National Assembly when it came into being in 1999, when other devolved nations were not given such a duty. So I think there was interest in the context of, you know, the journey that Wales has made to deliver on that, um, and how that led to further, um, more explicit legislation. But I think in many ways, um, what has become of real interest across the world is the fact that the Brundtland definition for sustainable development uh, was actually uh, generated through um, a committee chaired by Gro Harlem Brundtland, who had been the um, Prime Minister of Norway and was um, a key uh, person in the in the World Health Organization back in 1987. And the Brundtland um, definition, uh, which describes um, sustainable development uh, as development um, that meets needs without compromising on the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Um, and that's a really important principle. And that definition must have been used millions, perhaps even trillions of times since it was created in 1987. And it's the definition that everybody knows about in the context of sustainable development. What was deeply shocking to me was to find that when that definition was put into law through the Wellbeing of Future Generations Wales Act in 2015, Wales became the first nation in the world to have put that definition into law. Now, when we think about the fact that definition has been around since 1987, all the work the UN, now with 192 members, has done since then, climate change conferences and everything else, has been predicated on that definition. So why is it that only one country, Wales, not even a full member state of the UN, is the first to put into law. And if that's not bad enough, because after all, people might say, well, sustainable development is one way of addressing this, but of course, uh, all the issues around climate change or nature degradation or biodiversity um, are specific other areas. We then find that when the UN members, 192 of them, agreed the sustainable development goals, from 2015 to 2030, Wales is still the only country to have put a mechanism into law to achieve those sustainable development goals. So what we're doing is countercultural in one sense, but what we're also doing is showing that small countries can lead the way. Because all these countries 
in their membership of the UN have signed up to these principles, but they've not converted them into law in their own settings. And I absolutely pay tribute to those assembly members um, in that period of time between 2011 and 2015 uh, of all parties who put this legislation into law. This is an agenda which is both global and local because it is about how we as individuals, how we in our organisations, how we call on governments and the um, services that they deliver, what we call our public sector in Wales. Each and every one of us has to be part of creating the solution to this because we all as humanity have a stake in leaving the world um, in at least as good a place and hopefully a better place for future generations. And I think it's really important that this is a message both about systems thinking in the broader sense, but also a, a, a human kind message about hope and opportunity. Because what I've certainly found on my journey um, on this is that actually when you live a life that is more purposeful and that purpose isn't chasing in a sense consumerist passions whether that might be bigger houses more expensive holidays longer air trips uh, newer uh, high performance cars all the things that we traditionally see as success in our society when you put those aside and actually think of um, a more purposeful life in in the sense of being part of the solution rather than the problem. So you're thinking about, well, how can you have food sources that are closer to home? Can you grow more? It's uh, There's a big debate then about well, what land use looks like in a more sustainable world. What are the mechanisms for logistics from moving food from place to place because food is always going to be a tangible <laughs> issue you know and food without food we're not sustained mm. without water we're not sustained without energy we're not sustained without buildings we're not sustained as humans and so all these absolutely baseline elements um, that sustain us as the human race we do have to continue to create so how do we create them in a way that doesn't compromise future generations. And that takes you on a journey of discovery. It's a journey of adventure. And, and it's taken me from somebody who was living in a, um, uh, a traditional 1850 um, uh, ex-miner's uh, house on the edge of Cardiff, single glazing, gas central heating, um, up until 2007, uh, the occasional holidays abroad no real understanding of my role as an individual in the context of climate change to somebody now where I can honestly say that our energy is completely renewable. It comes either from the sun or from the, uh, or from the earth. Our heating comes from the earth, our ground source uh, heat pump. Uh, we top up with um, um, some wood from our own woodland, which we coppice and therefore manage in good condition for future generations. We've planted more trees and we've deliberately planted um, deciduous um, uh, indigenous trees like chestnuts so that they're there very much for future generations in our woodland. And each year 
we've made a commitment as a family that we will be greener than the year before and we'll do one big thing uh, to contribute towards that. And, um, and that, that's been really exciting. And that's engaged all the family. And what's really interesting now is seeing our children and their partners um, do something similar. I think it's a really powerful framing of the whole argument to put it in the context of future generations and thinking about one's own children and, and their future. And it, as you say, it brings it to that human level of, of the real impacts that we as, as people are going to experience and future generations in particular. It's this idea that actually everybody needs to be doing these things. It's not just for government to set policy and, and enforce regulation. There are personal choices and individual lifestyle choices that we all need to be making. And I think you talked as well about the ripple effect of those personal choices in how the people we know then start to behave differently and we're presenting different options and different ways of living that, that creates a ripple effect and grows a movement over time. But it just requires such political will, doesn't it? And again, that comes through really strongly in the book that yourself and Rodri Morgan and later Carwin you know, we're equally committed, politically committed to these principles and the, the idea that sustainability should be the, the, the core operating principle. But even then, it's been so hard to make it count and make it real for everybody in their everyday lives. So there does need to be public information from governments to people so they understand which of their actions has the greatest carbon effect. I mean, there was a point of time in the run-up to um, COP15, which was the famous um, conference of parties conference in Copenhagen back in 2009, where people thought there was going to be a global climate agreement, when there was a conversation about individual carbon budgets. Now, in the context of a climate emergency, I actually think individual carbon budgets introduced on a voluntary basis for a couple of years to test them, and then going into law would be an excellent way forward because they also provide the opportunity for people to trade. Um, this can't be an agenda where because your son or daughter lives on the other side of the world, you're never going to see them again. But you could potentially trade by, do it by really keeping your emissions down in other areas with, if, with, with somebody who, who does not want to use a flight at all. So there, if, if you want to keep things flexible, but I do feel that there are government solutions that can link to individual action that we're not yet talking about. Although every day we see further examples of the climate emergency. And I think the um, government has to be confident that its electorate will support it. Um, the one thing that of course can't be done, even in the context of law, is moving so far beyond the electorate in terms of the proposition um, because if the electorate won't vote for it then it's not going to happen and so we're in a really interesting situation now in Wales where because the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act is a law and the only country where it is a law this means it will apply to government of any political colour uh, and of course, we have the Senate elections uh, in May next year. And I hope that what the law will do, and certainly the act is designed as a framework, it doesn't, it doesn't prevent in any way parties having their uh, ideology around 
any aspect, but just asks them to be absolutely clear about the effect on future generations of the policy choices they make and effectively outlaws policy choices which we know would be detrimental to future generations. So in a sense, it's, it's a constraint in the same way as the Treasury Handbook is a constraint, you know, which tells you, take your decisions within this framework, but be really imaginative. What can you do to look after the interests of future generations? And I think that if we can make it work, we've got a pretty good track record in Wales of showing that things we've managed to make work here get translated. And if we just think about things in, 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 the, in my own area of responsibility, we were the first plastic carrier bag charge. And within four years, that happened across the, U, uh, across the UK. We would have been, had we had the powers at the time, the first country to stop smoking in public places. Mm. Which of course, is now ubiquitous, not just in, in Wales, but in Europe and across other countries in the world. We've seen legislation um, to ban smacking, uh, which has been led by other countries. But that, as, as in, in the context of supporting children's rights um, and changing the way in which children are brought up and taught to be responsible, is a really important message. We've seen the presumption of presumed consent um, in organ donation. Um, and of course, that will actually, actually save lives. So there are all sorts of social legislation as well as environmental legislation um, that have been created in Wales that are providing models for others. You'll yourself be particularly aware that there are really important ongoing conversations around procurement at the moment, about setting procurement in Wales according to the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which means that then the whole country, the relationship between the private sector, the businesses and the public sector will be led by decisions around future generations. So all of these ways, the individual action, the government requirements, the law, the policy, are all part of the agenda by which we ensure that we behave more responsibly. I'm glad you mentioned procurement. What do you think is the, the key challenge around procurement? Because it seems like it's the switch that could be flipped to put all this much higher on the priority list for companies across our region, for businesses, if procurement could be tweaked to make sure it really is measuring the outcomes that we want from procurement. One of the most important aspects of the Act itself is that it has seven goals. Those goals are um, clear about the outcomes that the legislators wanted to see in the creation of those goals. And the goal for a prosperous Wales in particular uh, is absolutely clear that uh, Wales needs an innovative, low carbon economy um, that understands environmental limits and contributes towards acting on climate change and provides opportunities uh, for skills and employment uh, and in particular, decent work. So the framework around which Wales can now procure in that economic environment can put that framework in very clearly. The other main context of importance uh, in this debate 
in terms of the act is the act also prescribes five ways of working. And these five ways of working are the mechanism for delivery. So it's almost that like the goals are the what, what do you want to achieve happen? And the five ways of working are the how, how are we going to get there? And they require people to deliver prevention. They require, they require people to think long-term. They require people to integrate the goals in terms of the outcomes. They require people to collaborate together to deliver the best possible uh, outcomes. And they require people to involve those about whom decisions are being made in the decisions. Now, that is a framework vehicle for how any future procurement needs to operate in Wales. And what I'm so excited about at the moment is that there are some amazing minds in Wales that are looking to ensure that both the what and the how are incorporated into procurement mechanisms. And there are some real opportunities potentially to do this at local level. In Carmarthenshire, we're doing a really exciting food procurement project that is looking at how healthy, nutritious food could be made available to all, irrespective of income, but also encourage more jobs that fit with the Prosperous Wales goal. That contributes towards the reduction of nature degradation, so fits with the resilience goal that keeps people healthy, so fits with a healthier Wales goal, that keeps communities cohesive and safe by creating more community opportunities for growing, for sharing, for supporting food banks, or, um, or creating new production opportunities or distribution opportunities, that fits with the culture and nature and language of Wales and plays to those strengths um, and, and also is globally responsible because it is not contributing uh, towards the emissions. It's taking a purposeful way forward. And the exciting thing about food is it's not in the national procurement framework. It is local. So every single part of Wales could develop a food system according to the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And what excites me most at the moment um, as I'm now a commissioner on the uh, UK Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, um, is that discussions around a sustainable food system are everywhere in Wales at the moment. Everybody wants to talk about this. I mean, partly it's because we want to avoid chlorinated chicken, <laughs> but also it's about the fact that actually if, if we uh, think of the consequences of Brexit, our farming and land use is going to have to change. And if we think of the context of climate, our farming and land use is going to have to change. So actually farming and land use becomes the biggest opportunity for Wales to look again at how it wants to deliver these absolutely essential elements into all our daily lives. So there are moments in time where you can find a, 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 a set of pressures that drive new behaviours. And I think that the health pressures, the economic pressures, uh, and the environmental pressures that we're under at the moment 
are one of those opportunities. And now we need to seize it. And if we can do it in food at the local level, hopefully at the same time government is looking to ensure that it only procures according to these principles at the national level. I'm really glad you came on to talking about the ways of working and there are some great stories in your book that illuminate some of those ways of working that the how of achieving these. What are some of the stories that fill you with the most hope? Because you are really hopeful, Jane, I think, aren't you? You're really optimistic. <laughs> You're really excited about, you know, the challenge that we're, that we're taking on. Um, what are some of the anecdotes and examples that you've seen in writing this book and in your work from across Wales that you think really show that people are thinking differently and working differently and, and discovering for themselves the power of this new way of working? Well, I think one of the extraordinary things about writing the book was that um, I, I went out to um, a range of people who I needed to talk to in the context of, of, the, um, of the story. People who've been um, important players in the development of the theme around sustainable development in Wales since, since the beginning. And I also went out to a range of other people whose views in which I was interested because they came from all sectors across Wales. So there are 140 voices in my book, yeah. which meant the editor had to cut the book down from 90,000 words to 60,000 words, um, which also meant that what I'm doing is um, ensuring that all those words are not lost um, by um, putting a few of those contributions up on my website every week to make sure that, um, that, that those, that those uh, contributions are captured. But I think what was extraordinary about 140 Voices is that, yes, they all support the Act. Many are critical about how the Act has been taken forward so far. Many are critical that the Act hasn't become a vehicle by which the people of Wales can hold their public services uh, and government to account, which is something I was very keen to do. Many feel that the Act's day is yet to come because uh, after all, it's only five years old and the first couple of years were preparation and people have owned, uh, so local authorities and all the named public bodies in the Act have only produced their first wellbeing plans. And I don't think if, if they looked back now, they would feel that they were good enough. Um, so we know that the second set of wellbeing plans are likely to be a lot better because we all build our learning. So I am really hopeful and I'm really optimistic that we're on a journey which is now accelerating because the nature of law means that it is a requirement and that therefore there are penalties, whether those penalties come from the Wales Audit Office as the auditor of all the public services or the uh, Future Generations Commissioner um, who has the power to name and shame but is also um, a major role as a critical friend um, or whether it comes from Welsh Government in the potential withholding of budgets to organisations that um, uh, do not want to comply with the spirit of the Act um, or whether it comes from the courts in terms of reviewing any decisions of any of the responsible public bodies or indeed government in terms of the way of behaving. So there's now a structure now around encouraging people to behave responsibly and with future generations in mind. And then the book just bursts with ideas <laughs> about what people can do. 
And on the one hand, you know, just bearing in mind our, our conversation about food, you know, I had an idea that's not in the book because it only came to me last week. And it's in the sort of what if, and I love what ifs. What if every community council in Wales, and there are hundreds of them, um, oversaw a community supported agriculture scheme. So all those things around food being a local source, um, creating jobs, opportunities at the local level, um, uh, a really good jobs and opportunities, using land in a different kind of way, um, enabling people to be fed locally from good produce, all those things could be done if that simple proposition was turned into a policy at community council level across Wales. Mm. And all they'd need to do was find a willing farmer or use some of their own land in terms of doing it, because I'm confident that the practitioners, the volunteers, um, and that there would need to be some paid workers involved in this, um, would, would rise quickly out of ev all the communities in Wales in terms of taking forward. Or, I mean, a, another great example um, is a project called Skyline in the South Wales Valleys, where in three valleys, in three towns, there is a proposition which I hope will be finalised this year, that those towns are given all their surrounding land, not just as a pilot or for a short period of time, but in perpetuity from the valley floor to the skyline, hence the name of the project. And the work being done on that in the context of communities is being led through the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, but it will be community decisions. And I think what's extraordinary about that idea is there have been so many millions uh, of pounds that governments of all political um, uh, parties have thrown in to the valleys in terms of trying to address um, often some inherent problems from communities left behind because they came for coal or steel or in other parts of Wales for copper or quarrying. Or... And when you're trying to address communities who might otherwise seem to be communities in the wrong place at the wrong time, they know better than governments what their opportunities might be. So having a framework that gives them carte blanche in the context of taking opportunities forward in the context of the well-being of future generations act is just really exciting so i think that potentially is the most radical project out there at the moment because for uh, land to be handed in perpetuity to a community if it behaves in certain kinds of ways in a, a, in a, in a framework that's only restricting people by their imagination in the context of looking after current and future generations so that they can also live in those valleys. And it's these kind of ideas um, which I think need to be taken forward. And land is going to be a really important part of this. We know that our current practices have got to be addressed. They're not the current land practices in Wales must be addressed because they're not fit for purpose. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in people who, in a sense, just look at the problem from a different aspect. They don't incrementally try and look at making a change, but they somehow manage to turn notions on their head and come up with an idea that's very simple for people to grasp. 
Yes, we talk a lot for the region about what we call change makers. I know that's a term that's used in the Office of the Future Generations Commissioner as well. But we actually need change makers working on everything, don't we? In every aspect of life and culture and community, we need change makers who are passionate about just that one thing. And then we need them to be networked together and to feel like part of a movement. One of the lovely phrases you used in the book on sort of reflecting on your personal journey was that it had been like a roller coaster ride against the tide and that what had kept you going was this lovely bit, you know, but just when you're feeling downhearted, some wonderful human being somewhere will give you hope and off you go again. <laughs> and I really relate to that because you, you can get downhearted, you can feel like you're not making progress and then you, you see a change maker that's doing something amazing and inspiring and doing their bit. And then that re-energizes you again, doesn't it? You think, yes, we're doing this. Together we can do this. What are the sort of key learnings that you can leave us with? Um, what needs to happen next? One of the important elements for me in, in writing the book um, was to be reflective of all the voices so that it's not just my voice in what, I, in what the key learnings are. And I think there are five key learnings that, uh, that, I, that I have described in some detail um, in the book. And, and the first one is that this is government legislation. So government really needs to lead it. It needs to be absolutely clear, um, both in the politics and in the civil service, that this is the central organizing principle of government and that the expectation from the top of the civil service and the top of government is that this is now the framework against, against which everybody needs to deliver. So I think that, and I think there is a, there is a lot of movement on that, but it's not there yet. And um, I, have, I have high hopes that the next election, which will enable manifestos to, be, to come forward um, around this agenda uh, will actually um, be much clearer about big ideas that could be delivering for the people of, of Wales and the nature of Wales in this context, um, humans in, in, in harmony with uh, nature. I think the second key learning is that in order to do that, government needs to use its powers and authority to create the right mechanisms to help that to happen. And that's, that is going to be by negotiation with the public services, the audit office, the future generations uh, commissioner, because the, these are the mechanisms of delivery. So government has to show political leadership, but it also has to create the right mechanisms for delivery. And withholding funding has to be one of those mechanisms because government has a small number of mechanisms um, and it's, but it has a very, very big reach, particularly in a small country. So it needs to be absolutely clear about the consequences of not going down or not supporting the key framework that it itself has outlined. It is its framework. And you or I may support it, but neither of us were actually there <laughs> in no. the agreement of it. We have no power, so, yeah. Yeah, so it is its framework. But that actual, that point you make about we have no power, that is the third key point, is that this must become a people's act. I always envisaged um, what has now become the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act being the ve vehicle by which people could hold their government to account. 
mean, what was really interesting um, in the process to creating the legislation between 2012 and 2014, there was, um, there was a big national conversation called The Wales We Want, which was predicated on the UN conversation at the time about the world we want. And this was, this was before the um, Sustainable Development Goals were agreed by the United Nations. And what was absolutely amazing to me, having gone back through all that material, is that that conversation was giving us the act. And therefore now what people wanted are, is in law and governments of all political persuasions now need to be able to deliver on that. So, you know, the, uh, so we have some confidence in Wales um, that we have, a, we have a community living here who wants to live a low carbon life, who wants innovation. Um, uh, that's linked to low carbon, who wants to live within environmental limits, who wants to tackle climate change, who wants to create healthy and cohesive communities, who wants to uh, uh, live a life that is more equal uh, with others and, and do everything they can to level up um, equality in Wales, that respects and endorses uh, our language and culture, um, that is globally responsible, but is resilient because of tackling the biodiversity loss and therefore must enhance biodiversity in Wales. So it is all there, it's in the act, it's supported by people of Wales. And I'd really like to see a huge um, uh, public uh, engagement campaign, not led by the government, not led by the Future Generations Commissioner's Office, but potentially led through the voluntary organisations of Wales in terms of saying, we've got this, now, what do we want from our public services and government in delivery of it? What do we want them to procure as services to the Welsh nation as well? So there's all those kind of opportunities. And fundamentally, none of this can be done unless, and I use the phrase, nature has rights too. And if we look at the species reduction in Wales at the moment, it is absolutely terrifying what we're losing in the context of species. 8% of our species are on a list of threat by extinction. You know, this is incredibly worrying. So nature almost has to be both the last and the first, because if we don't tackle the damage we do to nature, then we, can, we, we, we actively create a worse future for ourselves. And I think, I think that is a really important message. We can tackle it. You know, if we remove the level of nitrates, if we stopped the slurry fall off, um, if we ensure more sustainable practices, we can tackle it. And as a small nation, particularly with 88% agricultural land, if we did tackle it, we would achieve outcomes really, really quickly. So I think that, you know, we, the, the learning for me is that we've done a big jump, a big leap forward by creating legislation. There is a far greater understanding among people who make policy and law in Wales about what needs to happen. But the next big jump, when this becomes a national mission, has yet to happen. And I hope through podcasts such as this, 
by engaging particularly with younger generations who were unequivocal in their voices to power. Members of the Youth Parliament, members of the Future Generations Commissioners Leadership Academy, young people out in the public sector organisations in Wales with a passion for a better future. They're being absolutely clear about the action we could take and the Future Generations uh, Act provides the vehicle by which we can do that. I appreciate your points about it becoming a, a people's act and something that we can all use to hold each other to account um, on the decisions that we make. And, you know, it's got the potential to just be so empowering and, and the constant refrain that we've got permission to think differently and the government has given us permission to think differently. Well, then we actually have to step up and think differently as yes. well, don't we? It's not just the permission, we've got to do it and, and enact it. And I think I'd encourage anyone to read this book just to really understand the Future Generations Act as a set of values, to really understand where it's come from and why it's so important. Speaking personally, you know, the hair stands up on the backs of my arms when we talk about species loss and the, the reality of that. If you, if you just take a breath and stop to really think about that, you appreciate the challenges that we face on a really deep level. You know, the future of our region, the future of our planet and the future of our children's lives and generations, but also, you know, nature has rights too. I, I really appreciate what you've said there. Um, how can people stay in touch with what you're doing, Jane? You mentioned a website um, and... What are you going to be up to over the next year? Now you've written the book, you've recorded the audio book, you're translating it into Welsh, you mentioned as well. So we'll look forward to the Welsh version coming out. Um, but how can people stay involved in your journey and what are you going to be up to next? Uh, I had so many contributions, uh, 140 contributions in, in, in total from people in Wales, young and old, and from people all over the world, uh, from experts and uh, people who have visions of hope. Um, and uh, very excited uh, and exciting contributions for people to read. And I wanted to make those um, available uh, to people who are interested in this agenda in full. Um, because of the, uh, of the number of contributions, um, they've often been edited down uh, into the book. Um, but what I'm doing is making sure that uh, every week I put up a few of those contributions in full on my website. Um, and I should pretty well have finished by Christmas. So I reckon that by the end of this year, there will be a, a site with all the contributions in full on them. And, uh, and I think that's a way in which um, people are interested in reading those, but also people um, who are interested in researching the story. I think for academics, for campaigners, for practitioners, for policymakers, for politicians, um, it will, I hope, become a real resource to them in their journey and hope help inspire them when when life gets tough and it feels as though you can't move the paradigm from the status quo and, and the extractive economy uh, to, to, to something else. Um, my two things next about the book are that um, we're shortly launching the US edition or the North American edition which will be available um, from uh, US and Canada and I'll be doing a series of events around that. Uh, and I'm absolutely delighted that we are also going to be launching a Welsh edition, initially in ebook format, but I'm, I'm hoping that there will also be a, uh, a book version of it um, in the shops in Wales before Christmas. Um, 
and then we'll see. I already have ideas for a second book, which to build oh. one. Uh, so, um, but I'm not going to share those here. No, all right. <laughs> I won't ask you. <laughs> Anyone who wants a more sustainable, decarbonized, a more equal, healthier, greener and cleaner Wales, um, owes a debt of gratitude to you, Jane. I know you're very humble about it, but with that milestone of getting the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in place, um, I just feel that we've been past a baton, as you've said. The permission is there, the license is there. We've been past that baton, and um, it's for all of us, really, to run with that and to use the Act now in the way that you've envisioned that this piece of legislation should be and could be used um, and the exciting possibilities that opens up for all of us and the, the power of individuals and communities and change makers in that process. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dawn. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, and if it was useful to you for me to come and talk about the learning in particular um, at any event that you um, have from, for the region, um, I'm still very happy to do that. I'm, I'm not going to hibernate in my office for too long. Thank you, Jane. That's all for now. Bye for now. See you soon. Bye-bye.